This is Postico Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Hello, Postico Chronicle listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, we are interviewing remotely Dr. Justina Ray, the president of the Wildlife Conservation Society Canada. Hi, uh, Dr. Justina Ray. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, making time for our show. Um, just so that uh, the listeners know a little bit more, can you tell us a bit about what Wildlife Conservation Society Canada does? Yeah, we're an organization of of scientists who work in the service of conservation. I mean, that's 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 kind of the the, the nutshell of what we do. And uh, we've been operating as an, a Canadian NGO since two thousand four. And um, our scientists like provide long-term site-based or species research that tends to inform policy in particular geographies. But then increasingly, we've had uh, a national voice on, on more uh, larger scale policy issues and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we engage relevant decision makers and local communities, including indigenous communities at, at many levels. We provide scientific advice. Um, and, uh, we tend to be kind of behind the scenes in our, we're, we're not, we're not campaigners, but, you know, we obviously, uh, uh, feel quite passionate about the work that we do and communicate it in various ways, uh, but, uh, large, and we are also affiliated with a larger WCS, um, uh, wildlife conservation society organization that works in 60 countries around the world and in very similar fashion, quite a field-based organization where we work, but also informing policy, um, in many different ways. So we're very lucky to be part of that, although we're independently incorporated in Canada. Just so that uh, I, I get the right picture, I'm just imagining you doing a lot of field work, working with the governments, working with local communities. Uh, that's generally, uh, I guess, like where you would be, hey? There isn't like a specific location you work in? Yeah, we do. We do have a couple of about four geographies where we've got kind of long-term projects have been around for about 15 years in these places in the far north in Ontario, uh, uh, northern BC and Yukon, uh, the uh, western Arctic marine system, and then also uh, throughout Alberta and BC where we focus on bats, uh, the latter program. And so those are those are kind of our geographically uh, you know, based mm -hmm. programs where most of our work is field oriented, but we also have more and more of a nationally oriented kind of uh, uh, presence so that are more on policy. So I myself, you know, I'm, I'm a se I'm senior scientist as well as president, but I'm mostly in charge of uh, kind of managing or leading the programs. I am not in the field as often these days, uh, but certainly was in uh, at one point. Awesome. Uh, did you always know that you were going to work in conservation? I always knew since I can remember that I wanted to work with animals. I, I was passionately obsessed with, with animals from a very early age. And even though I didn't have much direct to, uh, you know, uh, experiences, um, cause you know, I lived in, uh, in the 10th floor of an apartment. Um, and so most of my experience was through, reading um and perhaps museums and and zoos uh and we didn't even camp uh, when when we were young so so it was quite virtual <laughs> even at that time um and and uh and i just was completely obsessed with animals but also very knowledgeable 
uh, or sort of aware, shall I say, of the plight of animals at that time. You know, it was already quite a concern. And, but I didn't know for a long time that you could work in conservation. I didn't know what that conservation could be a job uh, until probably, you know, maybe my teens or, or um, and, and when I started to get introduced to that, that idea. And, you know, I was in undergraduate when, when uh, the field of conservation biology kind of emerged in the early 1980s. Um, so I'm dating myself, eh? But, uh, but uh, you know that that was the birth of conservation biology, and I was lucky to be there from the beginning. And then you know just where it became a science, which has of course exploded since then. Um, so you know what I knew then that 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 was going to be my uh, field, and I haven't looked back since. I feel that children today, when uh, thinking about like animal lovers, it's usually like a vet and like working in that career, uh, I guess, path, but. We never really think about conservation. Like when I think about it, it doesn't seem like a straight line. I don't understand how people train to be to work in conservation. No, um, I mean I think that's fair. Like um, <laughs> you know, for the longest time, I thought the only avenue was a vet as well. I do think that today's undergraduates are introduced to more variety than I was. I mean, I sort of like I knew that I I, I wanted to go into the field of biology, but. Um, you know, I was among pre-meds mostly, and it was, it took mm -hmm. me a long time to get to even to really get a good full course in ecology. And, and what I observe is that, you know, those who are interested can, can go into environmental sciences, sciences, and there are, there are, there is more variety today. You, you can get introduced to it earlier, but not always. I mean, I think, I think you have to be quite purposeful and driven um, to be able to find it, it doesn't. It doesn't always appear, you know, as a as a as a possibility. And and I lament that sometimes among young people and undergraduates is that um, they don't know about the possibilities until you know. And so they kind of go go on the stream, so to speak, and 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 may not be introduced to to these things uh, early enough. Uh, that is always a concern of mine. Yeah, and uh, that's, I guess, uh, one of the great reasons why we're uh, have you on our show today, so that people can learn more about it. <laughs> uh, so it's really interesting because this entire episode we've dedicated to learning more about the caribou. And from what you're saying, it sounds like you're more of a, uh, I guess, like city folk um, before you got into all of this work. Uh, you said working, uh, living in the city. Could you explain a bit? But that was just bit? when I was young, right? <laughs> right. I mean, uh, you know, as soon as I got into graduate school, I was able to experience, um, and I did that quite young, right? You know, and uh, I, I had a, a wonderful opportunity, for example, to, uh, to, to, I, I, I paid my way to. I mean, I made, made enough money to get myself over to Thailand and and to Central Africa to be able to. Um, help people with 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 conservation projects and and research projects, and then I did my own PhD research in Central Africa. But I've been in Canada since um, the mid '90s, and and working in in northern boreal forests at that time. So I've always been, you know, my roots are very field oriented, um, quite you know pioneering in nature, like looking in looking in places where there isn't much. Um, you know, scientific information where you can you can do things kind of new. Um, for my my field research in Central Africa, I, I I studied some species of mongooses that had never been live trapped before. They were only known from museum specimens, and so I worked with 
uh, local Bayaka people to help figure out how to catch them live and then and then you know learn where they moved and and all of that information was and what their habitat requirements were and so forth and all that information was quite new um, and then when I came up to uh, to to northern Canada it was sort of similar that I was was looking for for kind of new angles uh, to to study. Oh wow! I it's I, I know we're not working uh, we're not interviewing <laughs> person, but I I have a million questions about all of that. Uh, so uh, for How another do we get time, get back to caribou. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's insane. The, the all, like everything you just talked about uh, regarding like all the mongoose. Like I'm curious about why or how you even started uh, i guess becoming a caribou expert well it was through carnivores so mongooses and and you know i was also studying uh civets and and leopards so it was like the carnivore community essentially and these are the weasel raccoon equivalents of central africa right forests and mm. and i studied that community and i've always been you know a carnivore ecologist at, at heart and and when I came uh, back um, and rooted myself in North American research, I was really focused on, on um, you know, martens and, and fishers and, and cats and, and so on. But I got quite intrigued by wolverines. And I had a fantastic opportunity um, in a collaboration with, with uh, Ontario Ministry of, of Natural Resource Biologies, Biologists and, and the Wolverine Foundation. I was um, very lucky to connect with uh, one of the most amazing wolverine biologists in the world, Audrey McGowan. And we did a study together on wolverines in, in the far north in Ontario. And this involved a significant um, uh, amount of, of, of aerial surveys. Like, you know, I, I traversed uh, this sort of large area that's the size of, of, um, of Spain. You know, it's 500,000 square kilometers with, with hardly any roads, mostly with pilots in small planes looking for wow. wolverine tracks and and um and then also visiting some of the communities uh to just learn about uh people's relationships first nations relationships with uh with wolverines uh historically and so forth but you know you you cannot go very far look talking about wolverines with without thinking about caribou so it was very very quickly that not only would I see caribou in the same places that I would see wolverine, but you know, just traversing these enormous areas, um, sometimes uh, for hours without seeing even a snowmobile track, um, and but you wow. see these extraordinary spectacles of uh, of of caribou, and so it was through that experience that I became very curious. So, you know, there was lots of things that I learned together about these two animals. And then, um, and then it went from there. So, you know, this has been a parallel track, but I certainly took the journey to begin with by being a, a carnivore biologist. Uh, um, so, and I still am at root, but, you know, I, <laughs> I certainly uh, have, have been pretty involved in, in caribou, uh, you know, for the last 15 years. That all sounds like another uh, incredible story of uh, being in such, uh, I guess, uh, remote, habitats or remote locations where you haven't seen uh, like a snowmobile like you said for days no it was well i was in an airplane so it's like two right. hours okay. right? right you know Fair. but that's that's pretty amazing <laughs> like to be in an mm -hmm. airplane that close to the ground um and uh these are um extraordinary areas i mean they've been obviously inhabited by people for millennia uh, right and uh and um, and and safeguarded as well, you know, to date. These are not these are areas that are still uh, undeveloped, 
and from and from an industrial perspective, right? And and mm-hmm. uh, and that that is increasingly less common. I mean, there are, although Canada does have quite a few areas of that that are that are intact like this uh, from an ecological perspective. This is not something to be taken for granted globally, right? right. So, uh, so it is a very special, special um, thing to be to experience for sure. Just so that we know a little bit more about your interest in caribou, like what's your uh, favorite thing about the caribou, or if there's a fun fact? Well, just where the when when you're studying these these animals, and I, I think I would put wolverine in the same category. You're just in awe of 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 kind of how they make a living in these extraordinary areas that seem so hostile and alien to us, right? So, I mean, they have, uh, caribou have a number of adaptations um, that that make them quite, you know, able to live in these incredibly cold, harsh environments. I mean, they have uh, these these hooves that, uh, that, that can act as paddles uh, on the one hand, and they can also break through ice to ice and snow and dig through snow to be able to to get their food um they they have uh, extraordinary properties on in terms of their fur all of these ways in which they 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 are able to survive and thrive in these these northern environments and there there are quite a few types of caribou they're all the same species but but depending on where they live in canada if they live in the mountains or if they live way up in the arctic um in 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 environments that are have a lot of ice and 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 sea crossings and so forth, or they live in boreal forests or on tundra, you know, um, they 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 behave and and their ecology is 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 slightly different and and their adaptations are different. So that extraordinary di- uh, versatility uh, of that is characterized by these animals, um, and it's so uh, it it it's so Canadian because you know just pretty much all these places. Uh, that you, the different kinds of environments that you can think of, um, you know, caribou have adapted in some fashion. But wow. uh, yeah, so that's that. That's what I would say is is the thing that makes me most excited about this animal. That is incredible. I would love to see a video of a caribou breaking some ice with their hooves. That sounds that sounds crazy. <laughs> well, even more crazy than that is the fact that you know, in not all types are like this but in in some mm-hmm. areas where they live they abundance and gregariousness is like a, a a built-in feature of these of these critters so so they will uh, assemble in enormous groups in in sometimes and if you're lucky enough to see that to see in you know hundreds and sometimes or even thousands of, of caribou together in one geography it, that is unbelievable like you know that's one thing that you know the spec these spectacles um uh and you know caribou are not the only ones that assemble in these large groups i mean that's something that we're starting to lose on in the planet is not only these really large aggregations of individuals um of of any you know of anything from you know primates to to bison to to uh to caribou but also these um, amazingly long migrations right so caribou are uh, not all types, but but some types of caribou will will um, journey for you know quite some distances, hundreds of kilometers uh, during the space of the year. And they and and in Canada we still have the space for them to do so in certain geographies. Not not all at all by any means, but those migrations worldwide, you know, wildebeest and 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 some mm-hmm. other animals like that are are disappearing 
um, or have disappeared altogether. So, so caribou are one of the few that still um, have some herds that maintain these long migrations, uh, which we have not yet interrupted. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think like I've said the word wow so many times, even <laughs> while you're talking, I'm just trying not to annoy the listeners so that they just keep <laughs> hearing me saying, wow, wow. <laughs> but it must be such an interesting sight to see. And I think that brings me like to my next question, really. Like, so you served on the committee on the status of endangered wildlife in Canada. And in one article, you mentioned that one of these reports uh, for the committee would take two to three years to assemble the data. What type of data are you collecting and what type of work goes into assessing the status of, I guess, one caribou herd? Well, I, I should go backwards a little bit just to explain to listeners what, what this is. So COSIWIC is a, is, is a committee and, and, um, and Matt did, you know, he did, did give the mouth full, but, you know, <laughs> a lot of us affectionately call it by its acronym COSIWIC. Mm -hmm. um, which is which does have have some recognition, but not but not very much. And essentially, it's a very unique thing that Canada does, which is it has its this committee um, that is legislated under the Federal Species at Risk Act, and um, it's made up of scientists and and indigenous knowledge holders as well that um, that assess the status of 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 species in Canada. Um, and they meet regularly twice a year and they, and they uh, through scientific means, um, assemble data and, uh, to, uh, and, then, and then evaluate uh, these data along various criteria, uh, which can range from you know, the extent to which there's been any population declines or, or if the range has, has um, retreated um, or, or other factors that might, might make it more vulnerable to extinction. And then confers these kind of status like endangered or special concern or or threatened and and then that's that's given as advice to the government of canada um who then you know the ministers the various ministers have to decide whether or not to list the species and if the species is listed um as one of these things then then there are various sort of they get on a, on a regulated list and there are various things that should happen like a recovery strategy should should be um, uh, uh, come come up with a sort of developed and and uh, you know sort of certain actions as well. So so Kosiwik process is at the very beginning, and and we don't assess herds, we don't assess individual herds, but we we assess species or or types of species. So in and they're called designatable units, which is a little bit of a mouthful, but that's why I like to for for sort of non-scientific audiences, I just like to call them types and. And I was describing how different types of caribou uh, live in different types of environments, like in mountain environments or or in the Arctic or or so forth. And there there are eleven types of of caribou in Canada. So we had to uh, you the Kosiwik process is kind of you you have to assemble the information and 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 someone like me just oversees it. There are lots of people who are involved in this. It's and review the data and so forth. But you. You have to come up with all sorts of information to to ascertain whether or or not they they meet certain quantitative criteria, uh, for example, percentage de decline of the population. So I have to be careful about getting too carried away with all the details because it can be kind of baffling. But suffice it to say that it's a long sort of consultative process because you know you want to make sure that you have whatever available indigenous knowledge there is. You also have to um, 
make sure that the the information that's gathered by various provincial governments and and wildlife management boards are included and um, and it's reviewed it's as robust as possible before you uh, make a decision on the assessment so I, I that's that's mm -hmm. sort of in a nutshell as much as I can <laughs> no uh, that uh, thanks so much for clarifying everything I know uh... I think sometimes like on our show, we get too deep into a rabbit hole. And I think that really well boiled it down for a lot of our uh, general listeners. I, in, when you were explaining that, I thought it was interesting that you really emphasize that sometimes when the government uh, put these statuses on certain uh, species uh, or uh, types of animals, you said that they should have a certain or take certain action. But you really emphasize should uh, where it made it sound like, they aren't doing as much or, or, or that not enough action. Like, and it seems like there's a huge laborious action that is required to really get the reports out that take years. Um, and I know I'm jumping ahead a bit, but do you think that the government is acting sufficiently to protect caribou? And uh, Well, in a word, no. Uh, and I'll explain why. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head that it's a really long protracted process. I mean, I just I just talked to you about the beginning of it, which is really, mm -hmm. you know, should this animal be even considered to be at risk of extinction? So it takes a, a couple of years to even make the assessment, right? So and by the time you've done that, you're already concerned about about the animal. Like many of the animals that come, like there are some eight hundred some odd species that have been assessed as as at risk by by Kosiwik to date. Um, and 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 you know so that's a that's a long list of, of various species. So you can imagine that having actions on on these various animals that's that that takes a lot of capacity, uh, resources and so forth and 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 beyond the means of, of many governments. And and it also, you know, when you get to um, the, the decisions about uh, what to do with species at risk in terms of how to safeguard them properly, how to recover them, because having a species listed means that they're already in trouble. So mm. that means you have to do things. And, and often that means limits on, on human activities, right? Especially, you know, so many of, of our species are, um, it's it, the reason that they're in this sort of pickle <laughs> that they're in trouble is because of, of habitat, um, you know, habitat loss or degradation. So that implies reversing that implies um, not only, you know, restoring habitat, but, but limiting our activities, you know, many harmful activities that, that destroy or damage habitat. So um, those decisions are really hard ones for governments for, because uh, sometimes uh, that means uh, the implications are that you would, have less development, fewer roads, uh, you know, less um, uh, natural resource development, and so on. And and that's a very hard place to get to. And I, I say most governments haven't gotten there. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of planning. So some some you know many of the caribou are listed um, on the on this on the species at risk registry. So which means that you know they have some of them have recovery plans, and um, and and there are actions subscribed prescribed in the in the recovery plans but 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 you know governments have to coordinate on on making certain decisions uh, about those actions and 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 that often doesn't happen those, mm -hmm. so um you know that's probably it in a nutshell 
like I do want to go deeper into understanding like the types sure. of actions. But before we get that get to there, you you did speak about uh, a little bit about roads, a little bit about human activity leading to the decline of uh, caribou populations. In a Canadian Geographic article, you wrote that the famous George River caribou herd of Quebec and Labrador, which once numbered close to one million individuals in the early 1990s, so around 30 years ago, now has just 5,500. And in the article, you also wrote that many herds have declined by more than 90% in the last 30 years. So you right now, you, you, you did mention a little bit about human activity, but is it just the building of roads and what are the specific actions that uh, lead to the uh, decline? Well, first, before I um, get into that a bit, let, mm -hmm. let's let's zero in on the George River herd because it's actually last year uh, there uh, there was actually some good news about that herd, relatively speaking. So, you know, I wrote that piece uh, just after a very disappointing survey in 2018, but in 2020. Um, you know, the survey was much better news. Um, um, you know, they had gone from that, that number of 5,500, which you just mentioned, to just a bit over 8,000 animals um, last year, um, which was, you know, incredibly encouraging, particularly since quite a lot of that were calves. And you need surviving calves, you need uh, new births to make up for the deaths, essentially, to, to give a burst to the population. So, you know, that was very exciting. I mean, it's not, nowhere near the levels that they have been at, and they're still at very dangerously low levels, but it was still a little bit of cause of excitement, right? Awesome. That's such so, good news. So, you know, it's nice to have some good news. Mm -hmm, um, for sure. With respect to your, your question, I mean, a lot of the, the threats or the drivers of, of declines that we've seen across Canada have been very different depending on the geography. For for um, caribou herds that are in boreal forests and in, in, the, in the western mountains, it's almost entirely uh, the declines are, are due to, you know, habitat removal and degradation. And this is from a combined set of things from, from um, you know, uh, you know, earlier on in, in, in 100 years ago, it, it was more, uh, you know, the combined human settlement and, and direct hunting and, and then the beginnings of forest clearing and so forth. But now... You know, it's a combination of oil and gas um, exploration and development, which is spe specifically in the Western Canada. Also, quite a lot of forestry across um, uh, various areas, recreation in some in some places. So it's like this cumulative effects, roads, exploration, seismic lines and all that. You know, they, they basically are added together and, and uh, they just disturb, you just amount to a significant amount of disturbance in any given range. So that... That is uh, the the culprit, you know, like this combined cumulative impacts of all these all these um, forces in in you know much of the area in the in the south. In northern herds uh, like George River and and quite a lot of the other famous herds that you know Bathurst herds and so forth up in barren ground country, Arctic and and all that. It's it's not as clear because there isn't as much habitat clearing in those areas, right? You know, you can't point to to that, um, uh, there's definitely got to be some climatic factors. Some development is of concern, particularly in calving areas or, or where roads have traversed um, uh, areas uh, that, that, that haven't experienced development before. Um, mm -hmm. The hunting can sometimes, if it, if it isn't cur curtailed uh, soon enough, um, that's difficult. 
I mean, one of the other challenges that we have with, with these northern herds is that they do cycle naturally. Um, you know, they, they, they do go up and down, you know, as far as we know, and those who, have, you know, have long historical relationships with caribou, you know, like indigenous peoples have, have long recorded that, that herds go up and down in number and that they've in some places right. been very, very, very um, uh, few and then they've they've risen up again. The the concern that we have this time during this cycle uh, is that you know a lot of things have changed. There are a lot of things are different from the last time, like in the 1970s and and 60s, where um, caribou were recovering after after uh, quite low populations up in the north. Um, there was hardly any development. You know, climate change wasn't a thing. You know, all these factors that are present now were not there at that time. So. There's a lot of concerns that, you know, that we don't have the same conditions to invite uh, these uh, these recoveries, these natural recoveries that, that we used to have. That's mm -hmm. why the George River story is a little bit encouraging. I mean, it's not enough, but we'll have to watch closely there. But there's some herds that really have been at low, low numbers uh, for quite a number of years with no sign of good reproductive activity to to have them recover. No, uh, and definitely that. That news is definitely encouraging. So all 11 types of caribou have been assessed by Kosiwik as a special concern, threatened or endangered. I mean, what does this mean when it comes to necessary actions for the recovery under the Canadian Species at Risk Act? Yeah, I mean, so first, like... I like to to be very provocative sometimes, and and I, and I'll say like all caribou in Canada are at risk of extinction. And you know, some people will say, "Wait a second. I mean, there are definitely some herds, you know, that are doing just fine because each one of those types of caribou is composed of anywhere between one to sixty different herds, right? So mm -hmm. we're talking about collectively, you know, over a hundred herds in Canada, and some of those those herds are doing fine you know, um, but as far as we know, but it's difficult to monitor them. And, and a lot of the news isn't, isn't particularly good. I mean, the, what this means from a species at risk perspective is that things have changed pretty quickly in a short period of time. Back in 2004, when these were all assessed comprehensively at that time, we weren't even worried about some of these types of caribou. We had no concerns um, uh, you know, Kosiwik didn't even assess some of them, and and mm -hmm. certainly some of them were were in better shape than they are today. So um, if you look back and forth between you know 2000, if you compare 2004 with with 2017, which is not very, that's a period of 13 years. You know, you've already had um, a, a significant downturn in a number of these types. You now and now every single one of those types of caribou that exist is at risk in some in some fashion. So that, you know, the, the speed at which that has happened to an iconic animal that's on our quarter um, mm -hmm. is of serious concern. You know, most people live within, a in Canada, live within 100 kilometers of, of the U.S. border where there's no caribou has not shown its face in, you know, 100 years. So most people are not, you know, viscerally aware. But, but for many in the North, this is a livelihood issue. You know, people have lost um, uh, their ability to... Uh, uh, harvest these caribou on a regular basis because there are so few and far between. That's that's been a problem from a cultural standpoint, from a livelihood standpoint. So so there's more 
there's more at stake in, in some areas of Canada than, than we can conceive of in, 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 in our, the major cities. And uh, caribou are kind of a symbol of, of, of Canadian conservation in many ways. I mean, you know, they, they can be kind of a canary in the coal mine in, in places where they are declining. We know, we understand, we monitor this, this, this animal better than we do others. And then we can say that, that, that other, other species that we don't uh, track as closely are, are also in trouble. So uh, there is a lot at stake. And, but, it's, but as I said previously, it's also really, really difficult to reverse these trends that I'm talking about because, mm-hmm. because they're in the face of a lot of our natural resource development interests. Um, this is part of our economy in Canada. And in some places, in order to really, you know, deal with this issue, it means that we will have to limit our activity. And that, that is um, uh, difficult to conceive of, to actually say no to some of the projects that we're interested in, that society's interested in. You know, will that have ramifications uh, locally for jobs? Um, uh, will that have ramifications for the provincial purses, uh, you know, revenue and so forth? Um, and, and, and so those are very, very tough decisions. Yeah, for sure. I would just to to think this through. Like, if there was, I guess, like a type of caribou that was endangered or threatened, and let's say that there were projects that were, I guess, impeding on their habitat. Like, has the government, uh, the Canadian government, taken action to to curb this? Is this? I, I think, like, in an article you wrote for uh, the Narwhal back in twenty nineteen. If we decide that it is uneconomic or simply inconvenient to save caribou, we will knowingly pull one more block from the now teetering tower of biodiversity. It's it's right now. It seems like either we allow certain uh, economic activity, which will come at the detriment to a type of caribou, or we I guess have a risk to the economy. Is that is it that black and white right now? Like I'm I'm a bit curious about your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean certainly it depends on where you are, but but I'll tackle your question this way. I mean, first of all, um, the federal government, and this is the this is where it gets a little you know confusing. But the federal government, you know, which is responsible for the Species at Risk Act, only has so much responsibility for land. I mean, most of the the power the, the control of of land, um, in the sense of you know the const- where the, cons- the the division of powers in the in the Canadian Constitution lies and rests on the responsibility of the provinces and the territories, right? So, mm-hmm. so this is a, a federal act, but it's really the the provinces and the territories that that make the key decisions uh, that relate to habitat and resource development and so forth, right? You know they are responsible for natural resource development in their jurisdictions, and that is enshrined in the Constitution. Um, and so that's a really important factor to understand. And, and so then it's going to depend on different geographies about what the action is. Um, the particular piece that you're, you talked about where I wrote, I was talking about um, British Columbia. And um, there's a lot of forces at play there, you know, lots of economic, uh, natural resource development in, in, in caribou ranges, particularly in, in the southern mountains, um, where a number of the herds have have actually declined to extremely low numbers or, or have outright disappeared. So significant declines in those areas. Um, I think we calculate around 60% overall of, of, of a number of herds in, in, of the southern mountain type caribou, which is on the western side of the, of the Rocky Mountains uh, in, in, in the southern parts of, of British Columbia, southeastern parts of British Columbia in particular. 
mm-hmm. those are in the way of a lot of interest in forestry, recreation, and so forth. I mean, what I can say, generally speaking, is that overall, um, in places where natural resource development is so important for economies, governments tend to bank on mitigating the impacts of development rather than limiting them. And if if I can explain that, when I say mitigating, I really mean they're going to proceed with the activity, but do it less harmfully than they might otherwise. So they're banking on, you know, putting certain measures in place, um, uh, which sometimes involve, you know, protection of certain habitats, avoiding certain seasons, um, mm-hmm. of, of activity, perhaps building the roads in a, in a certain way. You know, there is lots of care taken on that. You know, sometimes that can be considerable expense to the company to do something a little bit different or a lot different, um, but they're still under, undertaking the activity. And I think we've gotten to a place where um, in some cases uh, it's actually going to be, uh, you know, you're not going to be help, helping caribou because there's been so much habitat removal that doing it just mm-hmm. a slightly less harmful isn't really going to do any difference it's sort of it's sort of sim you know it, half measures are are not are not any better than than no measures at all effectively you know in in terms of when you've got when you've got a situation where the caribou herd is already doing very poorly mm-hmm. um they're they're having to resort also to what i call intensive management and this is this is things like uh, predator control, which means they're actually shooting wolves, removing them, the, the numbers from the population, um, and, and, and such things, uh, you know, that, and, and also captive breeding, you know, where they're actually removing caribou from their habitat, um, protecting them while they're having calves and then, and then putting them back sometimes translocation, which is Mm -hmm. where they're taking caribou from one herd and populating it to another. And so these are what we would call intensive measures. They've been done in, in quite a number of places and to success in the sense that, um, you know, if you kill quite a few wolves, that will um, take away the direct threat to many caribou because, you know, wolf populations do tend to increase in areas where there's been a lot of habitat clearing because, the character of the forest changes. It becomes much more, you know, the, the, the coniferous trees have been replaced by, by, by deciduous trees, and that attracts, uh, you know, prey like moose and, and deer in certain places. And that can overwhelm, that, that sort of changes a system, which makes it much more hospitable for wolves. And then they'll come in, and then if, if they, they're not necessarily targeting caribou, but if they see caribou, they, they will prey upon caribou, caribou are very vulnerable to that kind of system change. And that's mm-hmm. essentially kind of the mechanism by which, you know, the populations will decline. So if you do remove wolves, um, you know, you can get away with a lot more habitat clearing. But it's a really intensive and ethically, you know, skit, uh, you know, um, I'm not sure what the, what the word that I'm looking for, but ethic, you know, very problematic from an ethical perspective if you're removing you know hundreds of wolves a year in certain geographies um, uh, in order to keep caribou alive so that you can continue clearing habitat but that is a tent in, in you know that is happening in parts of alberta and bc in particular um and 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 that's in place of um you know uh, uh limiting 
limiting the footprint, so to speak. Having mm-hmm. said that, there's one more point, though. You know, restoring habitat is is a long game. I mean, um, caribou do. It's not just you don't just grow a few trees and you know the next year you have habitat. In many places, it can take up to 40 years, and we don't. You know, once you've cleared that much habitat. If you wait idly by, even if you stopped all development in certain places and you wait and you waited until, um, you know, this habitat grew back, you know, the, 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 without predator control, those caribou populations would be overwhelmed in short order. So um, some degree of, of, of predator control is often necessary in these, in these if you want to keep caribou, some degree of, 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 of captive breeding and so forth, because we've let let the situation get so bad. Um, it does take quite a lot of time for the habitat, a lot, a lot of number of years for the habitat to be restored to the levels that it will be hospitable for, hospitable for caribou. For like listeners maybe who want to assist in the protect, protection of caribou habitats and populations, what do you think they should know? And are, are there any actions that people can take uh, to help in any way? Well, I think the first action is is awareness, building awareness um, and understanding the situation. I mean, uh, one of our most challenging things is that, you know, unlike some parts of the world, we are often quite, we're quite detached from biodiversity, right? We, mm-hmm. and I'm not just talking about caribou, I'm talking about both species and ecosystems and basically life on earth. I mean, um, we live in, um, in, Places which have been quite homogenized from a biodiversity perspective, you know, it's we, uh, you know, only sort of the most hardy and um, and generalist types of plants and animals can thrive in a lot of the places which we've we've kind of mowed over and 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 converted into 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 our habitats, you know, suburban and and urban habitats, right? So mm-hmm. so a lot of us really don't have that direct connection. Um, and it's very abstract to us. So, you know, that's quite different from many people living in the world who depend on, on biodiversity, depend on, on this. Um, and, and so the connection is really important. And so I think um, if people can't get the connection, you know, firsthand by, by getting out in, in nature, then just being aware and, and, and knowledgeable uh, and, uh, about sort of the patterns and what what is Canada? What what is your area? What what is the natural biodiversity? What is happening to it? What are the what are the drivers of decline and where's where are the hopeful things? What 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 are governments doing? You know, just those types of uh, you know being aware and and knowledgeable is really the first step towards action because you know it's people who feel passionate and connected and engaged are are going to be able to figure out what to do. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think I think it becomes quite evident um, and you can see that around you. I mean, uh, you can see uh, and even today where we're penned up in, um, in our you know in our homes, um, you know people are aware of things that are happening, for example, where um, uh, developments are 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 going are are being proposed for areas that that that, pe- that people love mm-hmm. for example coal uh, proposed coal mines in the eastern rocky mountains in alberta or in southern ontario where uh you know an amazon warehouse is is potentially going to be on one of the last 
most important provincially significant wetlands in in an area around the greater Toronto area, right? So, you know, those are those are types of examples that just in the last couple of weeks have galvanized people, young people included, to get out and defend nature. So, you know, and that's happened because of increasing awareness and understanding and the passion that comes with it. Thank you so much for uh, being on our show. I, I, I do have one last question. I think that I was going to bring up the development in the wetlands in Ontario, and I think a lot of people who are just penned up at home, I feel like there's so much negative news that we are bombarded with every day regarding like, oh, there's going to be a new development here and it's going to have negative impacts on the local ecology and habitats. I'm curious, how do you find the motivation to to keep working on this and to, to keep at it and to really like, I guess, get out of bed every morning? <laughs> Yeah, I'm worried because I'm getting that question a lot, and I'm and and I worry about people uh, for that. And and all I can say is that for my part, I'm motivated every morning when I get up out of bed. I just I just feel such drive, um, and uh, and it's not about hope or not hope because that's just not an option. It's just mm-hmm. that there's so much to do, and um, and there is enough. Um, you know, there's just so much reason for it every day. And I can't, I can't describe it. I just can only say that I, I feel a sense of rage <laughs> in some ways. I've, I've used that term a, a number of times in, in when I speak with undergraduate classes. And um, there is some evidence to say that that is actually something that can get you over any kind of sense of despondency because, because you, you know, it does spark motivation and, and action. And it doesn't mean that every day I feel great about it. I mean, I, I, I sometimes feel deeply frustrated and, and discouraged. Um, but, but there's, there's so many reasons to, to keep doing what I do, um, and talking about it. And, and, and I, I feel, you know, a, a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, what do you call action? I'm, motiv- I'm motivated enormously by by my team at WCS Canada. They've got, I'm surrounded by the most extraordinary people, partners. I get to work with people every day that feel as passionately as I do. Um, you know, both within my organization and, and outside, in all areas, got within government, outside government, everywhere. So I know there are lots of people out there and we just work together and there's so much to do. And all I can say to anybody who's listening is come join us. (laughs) Um, And I hope that was helpful. To learn more about the work of Dr. Justina Ray and the Wildlife Conservation Society Canada, you can visit them on Instagram at wcs.canada and on Twitter at wcs underscore Canada or on their website wcscanada.org. Postico Chronicles is hosted and produced by me, Matt Falk. Alice Coombs was the co-producer for this episode. Our staff also includes Kasun Medikadara and Rostislav Soroka. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for the Day by Loyalty Freak Music, and there are other music credits on our website. If you liked what you heard, send us an email at postacochronicles at gmail.com. 
We read everything you send us, share us, follow us on our social medias, or shoot us a message on Instagram. We seriously read everything, listen to everything, and uh, we will most likely respond. So thank you for listening, and we will see you soon.